You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing Death Row Fugitive. Hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm recording this a bit early, but by the time you're hearing this episode, Thanksgiving will just be a few days away. I have done the whole make Thanksgiving dinner by myself thing before, and it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. I think I maybe did it like three or four years ago. Um, The only fluff up that we had is that Brian took it upon himself to make a pumpkin pie from scratch, and I was very impressed. He researched recipes. He got a little sugar pumpkin. He woke up early on Thanksgiving morning and got it all ready. And then when we were about to sit down and have dinner, he put his pie in the oven to bake. And two hours later, we remembered it. (laughs) So needless to say, we didn't eat his charcoal pumpkin pie, but luckily we had other pies to eat, so it wasn't too big of a deal. But have you guys ever had any Thanksgiving fluff ups? I would love to hear about them. Um, I mostly just felt bad for Brian that he had put in all of this hard work and then he wasn't even able to reap the rewards of his efforts. Um, I don't actually don't even really like pumpkin pie, but I did feel bad for him because he had just worked really hard on it and then he didn't even get to eat it. So that totally sucked. Um, This Thanksgiving is going to be different for so many reasons, um, but I hope that you will still be able to reach out to those that you love, whether it be from a distance in like the driveway or across the lawn or by using technology. That's definitely something that I'm grateful for this year is being able to FaceTime my family so that we can still feel connected. It was something that was pretty important before to me at least because I do live so far away from my family. And if you're just joining us and you haven't listened to any of the other episodes, I am currently living in Utah and my parents live in New York. That's where I grew up. So, you know, we can't just like stop by every once in a while. We live super far away. Um, We actually haven't even seen my parents since last Christmas, so to be able to talk to them over FaceTime has meant the world to me and my kids. Um, My kids definitely miss their grandparents, Um, but even with my husband's parents, they only live about 40 minutes away. It's been great. If anything, we're actually talking to them more now than we ever did before, so yes, technology is great. I'm grateful for technology. COVID sucks. Thanksgiving is great. Um, Yep, that's that's where we're at right now. (laughs) Plus, if we didn't have this advanced technology, um, I wouldn't be able to do this podcast. And honestly, wouldn't that be the real travesty here? (laughs) Oh, update. Six days ago, Unsolved Mysteries had, um, they gave an update, um, but also like a call for help. So Netflix Unsolved Mysteries has provided fans with an update on the case explored in episode four, which is my episode two, if you want to go back and listen to it, if you haven't listened to it before. Um, It is the disappearance of Alonzo Brooks. The episode, which arrived on Netflix in July, looked into multiple theories surrounding the death of 23-year-old Brooks, who was last seen at a local house party in rural Kansas on April 3, 2004, before a search party found his body on the banks of a nearby creek a month later. 
In a recent Twitter post, the popular Netflix series revisited the case, telling viewers that the FBI and the KBI has learned of a second party in in the Lacine area. So, this is what their tweet said. It said, update, the FBI learned of a second party in Lacine, Kansas, the night Alonzo Brooks disappeared. Attendees left the party after a fight broke out, and then they headed to the farmhouse where Alonzo was last seen. Then they, um, plea, if you have attended either party, or if you attended either party or know of someone who did, please come forward. The initial investigation into Brooks' death proved inconclusive after a cause of death could not be determined from an autopsy. However, in June 2020, the FBI Department of Justice reopened the case citing potential new leads among renewed interest in the case thanks to Unsolved Mysteries. Good on you, Unsolved. And um, they offered a cash reward of $100,000 for new information. They're also trying to figure out the exact name of the woman that Alonzo was seen flirting with that night in our episode, which I think I said it's episode two. Um, we kind of like go over a few guesses as to who this mystery woman could be. Um, but that was basically all conjecture. And now the FBI feels like she is the key to solving this case. So uncovering who she is, is obviously of vital importance. So if you know, shoot a tip on over to unsolved.com and they'll pass it on to the FBI and the KBI. The case we're going to cover today is timely, I would say. Um, The story includes a Christmas shopping trip gone awry. And as we know, the biggest shopping day of the year is just a mere three days away. Black Friday, what, what? Um, So let's dive in, guys. This is the case of the death row fugitive. This case begins in Mansfield, Ohio, which is in Richland County. Um, We speak first with Myrtle Carter, who is Mary Ellen's sister, who, by the way, is slaying it during this interview, I've got to say. She is a vision. She is a goddess. She is a queen. She really is stunning. She's giving me like some serious woman with the pearl earring vibes, and I am here for it. Yes, please. Um, I'll post a picture of her during this interview on the Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved so you guys can see for yourself. Um, Make sure you double tap that post to show how much you are all about Miss Myrtle. Um, Miss Myrtle says that she has lived in Mansfield, Ohio since she was about three years old. And for the most part, it was a great place to grow up and live. Everyone knew each other and she felt safe. She never remembered feeling scared or afraid of something happening to her. Um, In 1965, Mary Ellen was a typical little girl. She liked to ride bikes and play hopscotch and play with dolls. She had a lot of friends and she loved to laugh. There were seven kids in Miss Myrtle's family, and they each had their chores that they were in charge of in order to contribute to their family. The boys did the lawn keeping and the trash, and their mom would do the floors, you know, like vacuuming, sweeping, and mopping, and so forth. And the little girls were in charge of laundry, so they all took turns washing, folding, and ironing the clothes. On November 14, 1965, Mary Ellen, 14, and Brenda, 12, had washed all of the clothes, but the dryer was broken, so they took a taxi to take the wet clothes to the laundromat. It was pretty late, but their mom felt comfortable sending them to the laundromat late at night because their grandmother actually lived right next door to the laundromat, so they knew that they could go there if anything, anything or anyone should make them feel uncomfortable. 
the two were drying their clothes when they realized that they were out of change. So Mary Ellen left um, with a couple of bucks to walk to the other laundromat to get some change. Between the two laundromats, it's about a five-minute walk. So when Mary Ellen hadn't come back after like 10 or 15 minutes, Brenda went next door to her grandmother's. Their grandmother told Brenda to stay at her home while she went out to look for Mary Ellen. On their grandmother's way to retrace Mary Ellen's steps, that's when she saw the police. And eventually, she saw that it was Mary Ellen that they were there for. Mary Ellen had been shot twice. John Arcudi, Arcudi, it's A-R-C-U-D-I, Arcudi, I'll probably say, a retired captain of the Mansfield PD, said that police were able to quickly determine what caliber of gun was used in Mary Ellen's murder. So they went about to all of the gun stores in Mansfield, Ohio. They actually located a store, it was called Diamond Harbor, and they used, they asked to see their books. And they saw the gun, and they saw that it had been purchased by Lester Eubanks like a day or two before the shooting. So they take this information, and they spoke with informants who claimed to have seen Lester in the area that Mary Ellen was killed the night of the murder. Miss Myrtle said she knew of Lester from the neighborhood, but she had never really spoken to him before. Um, but she did think that he was pretty weird. Apparently, he used to roam the neighborhood by himself because he was kind of a loner, and he was always practicing his nunchucks, which immediately made me think of Napoleon Dynamite when he was like, nunchuck skills. <laughs> he would just walk up and down the street swinging those nunchuck babies away around. And I'm just like, what a weirdo. Anyways, we learned from David Seiler, who is a deputy U.S. Marshal, that Lester had grown up in Mansfield, and he is described as a sharp-looking man and a snazzy dresser, and even though he was a loner, he was pretty well-liked. He was kind of a chameleon um, of sorts in that he had the ability to blend in and just, like, get along with just about anybody, but he is what would be considered today a repeat sex offender. Lester had been arrested two times in the past for sexual offenses. At the time of Mary Ellen's murder, he was actually out on bond for one of these rapes. Arcuddy tells us that this guy shouldn't have even been out. He was a repeat offender and that a bond should not have even been offered to a guy like Lester. He still seems baffled and disgusted to this day all these years later. You can tell that this case has very much weighed heavily on his mind. Sunday morning, officers took Lester down to the police station. They conducted an interview where Lester did end up confessing to the crime. His confession was detailed, um, it was pretty detailed, um, and he explained what he did. David Seiler says Lester um, reported that he was just hanging out in the area when he spots cute um, little Mary Ellen, and he sees her as an opportunity because he's a predator. He grabs her and he pulls her behind a house. She starts to scream, so he tries to muffle her screams, but it's not working, so he shoots her twice. Eubanks left the scene, and he quickly goes to his apartment around the corner. Um, he gathers himself up, he cleans up, and he gets himself ready to go dancing downtown in, in order to provide himself with an alibi. On his way downtown, he walks past the crime scene to check on it. When he does this, he sees that Mary Ellen is actually still alive and that she is writhing in agony. Um, she was alive after being shot over 45 minutes later, and so he picks up a brick and he finishes what he started. David Seiler tells us that he doesn't even want to go into the details of what Lester admitted to doing to this little girl. He says, he just says, he goes back, 
What do you want to know? He's a monster. It's disgusting. And David is right. David continues by saying that Lester Eubanks and his selfish act took Mary Ellen's family and turned it completely upside down forever. Richland County Courthouse um, of, in May of 1966 um, is where Lester was put on trial. Um, he actually chose to testify at his trial, and he didn't seem to show any remorse other than that he was caught. Um, and rightfully so, a jury of his peers sentenced him to death. Myrtle says everyone was happy with the outcome for a while, which is ominous, so... We're going to figure out what happened. Why were they not happy after with it after a while? An inmate at the Ohio Penitentiary said that he never liked Lester. He tried to stay away from him because Lester had a reputation of having an attitude. There were a lot of people that Lester didn't get along with, and there were a lot of things that Lester didn't like. He was a loner in prison, and he kept himself for the most part. He was always either painting or writing. Eubanks was allowed to have a canvas and paint, and this was not at all unusual in the 60s um, for this sort of thing to be allowed to death row inmates. Um, they wanted them to do things that would allow them to feel productive in society, or at least productive to themselves. Um, three separate times, Lester's execution was pushed back for unknown reasons to this day, and then in 1972, it was indefinitely pushed back because Ohio decided to get rid of the death penalty. So Lester's life sentence was converted to a life without parole sentence. Mary Ellen's family was obviously angry, but inevitably they decided to let it go because they knew that it was out of their control and at least he was still in prison, right? After his sentence was converted, he went into the prison's general population. Um, Lester was a smooth talker and he won the guards over. They allowed him to get into this honor program. At the time, there was a national reform movement to help inmates prepare for life on the outside. Lester was somehow admitted into this program, even though he was sentenced to a life without parole. So I don't really know why he needs to gain skills to get on the outs to like help him with his life on the outside if he's never going to get outside. Um, but in this program, they were allowed to drive inmates between prisons. They were able to run errands under the chaperoning of a guard. He was even able to enter art shows and actually go to the art shows. Apparently, he was really good at art, and he would sell his um, pieces at art shows. And so many of these people would speak with him at the art shows and even purchase his art, never knowing the monster that he really was. Now we know that Lester and the type of offender that he was is one of the last people you'd want to release into the general public due to their recidivism rate, which is the likelihood that they'll reoffend. It is extremely high with sex offenders. On December 7th, 1973, eight years after Mary Ellen's murder, Lester, along with four other prisoners, was allowed, because of the furlough program, um, they were per permitted to go on a Christmas shopping trip in their civilian attire. They were given instructions, obviously, like, hey, do your shopping, but uh, TikTok, make sure you're back here at 2 p.m. But then they were just released into the public. There were no guards chaperoning them while they were doing their actual shopping trip. The guard was just sitting in the bus, reading a paper and drinking coffee, and oh my gosh, are you freaking kidding me? This seems ridiculous. 
Again, I'm confused how Lester even qualified for this program. The point of the program was to help inmates who were going to be allowed back into society. And to my knowledge, that was never going to happen with Lester. His sentence had been converted to a life without parole. So there was no way that he was going to get out. So why did he qualify for this program that teaches you how to get along when you get out? He wasn't ever going to get out. So why did he need to practice these skills? He didn't. He just got friendly with the guards who knows how, and he was allowed to go on this Christmas shopping trip. Guys, you're never going to believe this, but two to three hours later, Lester did not return back to where the guard had instructed the inmates to meet him. Can you believe that? Wow, I did not see that one coming. I thought for sure that he was an honest guy. So weird. Insert biggest eye roll ever. The guard rushes around the mall because he's like, oh crap, I messed up and he's trying to find him. But guess what? Lester's not there. And hello, he had a two to three hour head start, you big dummy. He could be anywhere by now. Again, I am baffled and so is everyone else involved in this episode or who is watching this episode. I have no idea why they thought it would be a good idea to let a repeated sex offender and a murderer out of jail for a few hours unsupervised. At a mall, no less, where there's like a bunch of 14-year-old girls. Duh. Oh my gosh, so freaking stupid. But literally the only explanation that I can think of is that it was the 70s and people didn't have the internet back then. Therefore, they were just kind of like stupid and naive. And that's literally the only explanation I can think of. Mary Ellen's family was notified that Lester had escaped and everyone was angry and shocked and confused. Myrtle just kept saying, Christmas shopping, Christmas shopping. You've got to be kidding me. Uh, some idiot guy, I don't even, I didn't even write his name because he's so dumb. Um, he says, no one really knows how he could have escaped from the immediate vicinity of the shopping mall. Really? Really? Nobody knows? Oh, maybe he was able to escape by, uh, I don't know, the fact that no one was watching him for like three hours. I mean, it's not like he was wearing a shirt that read, hi, I killed someone. He just looked like a regular guy. Why would anybody be watching him? Regardless, police believe that he wasn't able to escape on his own, which I disagree with. I mean, I do think that he did get help in this specific instance, but to say that it would be impossible to walk away from a mall without drawing attention to yourself is like me saying I couldn't go to my mailbox without being detected. It's just dumb logic to me. Um, but basically they're saying it probably wasn't a spur of the moment type thing. And okay, I do agree with that, especially when we learn that Lester didn't really get many visitors over the years while he was in prison, except during the several weeks before his disappearance. And this obviously raises some red flags. Apparently, his visitation list was alarming just prior to his escape. He was getting visitors once a week, and that's suspicious. And David believes that these visitors definitely hold some culpability. Lester's family and friends and everybody on the list were talked to, but they refused to reveal any information. After Eubanks' escape, Franklin County and the FBI put out a warrant for his arrest. A manhunt ensued, but no one was ever able to locate him. It would be 20 years before we get any more information about Lester's whereabouts. 20 years. That's incredible. Um, in December of 1993, so literally 20 years later, December and everything, our captain is back. And he says that Lester suddenly popped into his mind one day and he thought, you know, 
We haven't heard anything in all of these years about Lester Eubanks. Is it possible that he was apprehended and nobody notified us? Wouldn't that have been a real treat? Unfortunately, that was not the case. And in fact, the news our captain would uncover was honestly terrible. He logged into the system to check on Lester's status and he was expecting to see a warrant, but he saw nothing. Due to a clerical error, the warrant had been removed from the system. So if Lester had been stopped at a traffic stop or his social security number had been run in the last 20 years, nothing would have come up. He would have just gotten a ticket and been let go, just driven away. This case is seriously unbelievable. This guy has gotten like so lucky. He's gone through so many loopholes. It's incredible. And it's honestly just pretty embarrassing. Um, So now that Captain Arcutty is aware of the error, he obviously fixes it, but he wants to like course correct. He wants to do whatever is necessary to get Lester's story out there for a huge audience to see. So he succeeds in getting him on America's Most Wanted. The episode aired on September 10th, 1994. The night the episode aired, they actually received a call from a woman who said that she knew him and that she had used to hung out with him in California in the mid to late 70s. And according to her, Eubanks had lived with a woman named Kay Banks, his cousin's widow. On October 28th, um, I think in 1994, Um, Police met up with Kay. She cooperated with police for fear that she was going to get in trouble for aiding and abetting a known fugitive. She said Eubanks had lived with her in LA in the 70s, but that he no longer lived there and she no longer knew where he was. She said she was from Ohio and she was married to Daryl Banks, Lester's cousin. Daryl was a pretty popular singer in the 60s. However, Daryl was shot and killed in Detroit. And um, after Lester was put in jail, she established a She established a relationship with him as a pen pal while he was in prison. She indicated that after Lester escaped, he went to Michigan to wait out um, whether or not he was being chased. Um, And in the meantime, he painted houses. Um, Somebody, I don't know who, they don't say, um, but eventually somebody pays for him because he didn't really have any money. They give him a one-way ticket to California. Lester told Kay, When he got to California, law enforcement got on the bus and he thought, oh no, the jig is up, that's it, I'm through. He thought they were going to arrest him for sure, but nope, law enforcement wasn't even looking for him. They were looking for illegal fruit. When they left, Lester said to himself, I'm free. Kay Banks was surprised when she answered the door. He was using an alias, Victor Young. He applied for a fishing license to get an ID because in the 70s, you didn't need to give your fingerprint to get a fishing license. Um, Apparently, he painted a lot while he was hiding out at Kay's um, doing his portraits. Um, One officer remarks that he did see some of Lester's work and that, quote, Lester was talented, but he was just evil. No truer sentiment has ever been said. Kay Banks said that Lester was a bully and that she was scared of him. After so much abuse, she felt she had to come up with a way to get him out of her house and out of her life. So she concocted a story that while he was out at the grocery store, the FBI had called her asking about him. And this was enough to spook Lester. So he promptly packed up his things and left. That was all it took. 
good thinking on her part, honestly. I, I honestly think that she just got in over her head. It doesn't even say that they were in a romantic relationship. It just said that they were like pen pals. So I just think she was being nice and writing to him. And then he just showed up at her house one day. Um, I also think that he conned her into thinking that he was a good guy, just like he had conned so many others, including the prison guards. And honestly, I'm super proud of her for getting him out and coming up with a way to get him out of her house. Apparently, when he left, he went down to Gardenia, California, and he was making mattresses. They went to that location later, and the former owner said that he had worked there until 1985 or 1986, so almost like 10 years. In 96, Eubanks was still running, but investigators didn't have any further leads. There wasn't much more that they could do. So we fast forward all the way to 2003. In 2003, Victor Linson, a lieutenant in Ohio, was contacted. He looked into the case to see what he could find. Linson's initial thought was to get an interview with Mose Eubanks, who is Lester's father, who still lived in the Mansfield, Ohio area. Mose does agree to speak with police, but he does have a condition, and it's a pretty huge condition. He says, I'll talk to you about anything you want to talk about, but I'm not going to talk about Lester. Well, Mose, they didn't come to ask you about your freaking favorite ice cream flavor. They don't really want to talk to you about anything except Lester. So at this point, I don't really know how this interview is really going to proceed, but they go in anyway and they sit down and they talk to Mose. Mose goes on to explain how he frequently, he's a man of the cloth, um, and he frequently goes down to the prisons trying to help inmates turn their lives around. He says that there isn't anything that he can do that will help them bring the little girl back. And Vincent very wisely counters, well, do you think that justice was done in this case with your son? And Mose specifically and intentionally looked at Vincent and he says, people change and they go on and they start new lives. And I pray for Lester every day. And that's all I'm going to say about Lester. It's at this point that they talked with Mose a little bit more. And the two detectives looked at each other and they both, you know, telepathically told each other. Mose knows exactly where Lester is, but they knew that this wasn't going anywhere. So they left. A while later, a detective with the Mansfield Police Department spoke to an informant that that same summer, a friend had been over to Moe's house. He got a call while they were there, and when he returned, he told the woman that he had been talking to his son who lived down in Alabama, and that his son had called him while he was on a break from painting a house. They looked into Moe's other children and surprisingly, none of them lived in Alabama, so they knew that Mose had been talking with Lester and had been referring to Lester. Vincent got a subpoena to get Mose's phone records, and lo and behold, there were several calls placed back and forth between Mose House and a center for youth located in Alabama. They called down to the center, and they discovered that someone matching Lester's exact weight, height, and age had in fact been working there. The guy didn't have a driver's license because he, because he didn't drive and his social security number was coming back as fake. So this obviously piqued their interest. Unfortunately, the guy who had been working there had actually quit just a few months before the detectives began digging into this. Probably when he was tipped off by his dad that police were digging into his whereabouts. So 
Lester was no longer there. He had escaped their grasp yet again. Mose Eubanks was a supposed man of the cloth, and he was willing to forgive and forget. He was willing to forgive his son and the brutal act that he had committed, the life that he had taken of this young, beautiful girl. But he was also willing to forget Mary Ellen Diener, the poor child that was murdered. It's seriously just tragic. He got to live his life free, and she didn't. Miss Myrtle says that during his trial, Lester was given the opportunity to apologize for what he did, but he never took it. No one from the Eubank family has ever reached out to Myrtle or her family after all these years. I imagine in a sense it's good that he didn't apologize because even if Lester did, it would not have been genuine. It would have just been a ruse to like get a reduced sentence or something. I think this is a classic case of, you're not sorry, you're just sorry you got caught. Um, but I think it pro- it would probably still feel good to hear it, but I just don't know how genuine the apology and like how authentic the apology would have been. Um, anyways, Dale, a police officer who worked the original case and is still working in the police department today, says that he has been a police officer for over 40 years and that this is the biggest miscarriage of justice that he has ever seen and he cannot forget about it. Arcuddy says he wants Eubank to be apprehended and pay for the heinous act that he has committed, but they can't do it by themselves. They need to get his profile out. David says that the U.S. Marshal's mission is to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Mary Ellen cannot fight for herself. In 2018, David pushed for Lester to be on the America's 15 Most Wanted. And seriously, if you make this list, it literally means that you are like the worst of the worst. And David was able to get Lester on this list. He knows for a fact that Lester has associates in Ohio, Michigan, Florida, Alabama, Texas, California, and Washington. Someone is going to identify him and someone's going to bring him to justice one day. His biggest fear is that Lester will be able to continue out his life as a free man and that just makes him feel sick to his stomach. He tells us that Lester has a thick scar on his right arm. It's about one inch and it's pretty identifiable and we know that he's a talented painter and David Seiler does not think that, you know, that Lester would just be able to give up painting. It's something that he really loved and it was his passion. And so he's hoping that in an act of irony, his art is actually going to be the thing that leads to his arrest just because he doesn't think it's something that Lester could ever stop doing. David says that there is a $25,000 reward for any information that leads to an arrest, and he says he would be more than happy to personally pay this reward himself if Lester Eubanks is ever caught. Miss Myrtle, the beautiful queen herself, says it's important Lester is caught because he was given a life sentence. She says, he took my sister's life. She didn't get an extension. Her life is over. And this is what the law says should happen. He should be living, but not free. So when you are out and about this holiday season, picking up a KitchenAid um, for your grandma or picking up like a PS5 for your brother or your son, look at the people in line around you. Take a real good look at the people in line and the people shopping for shirts next to you. Because you just never know. 
if Lester Eubanks or his aliases Victor Young or whatever alias he's using these days, if he'll be standing right beside you. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Lester Eubanks, contact the U.S. Marshals at 866-4-WANTED or go to unsolved.com. I'm going to go ahead and post a picture of an age-progressed image of Lester Eubanks on my Instagram account at Mystery Still Unsolved so that you guys can take a look at it. Um, I'll also see if I can post a picture of the scar um, because it is actually a pretty big scar, even though it says it's one inch. I think it's one inch in width because it does seem a little bit longer lengthwise. Um, but I'll post that. And I'm obviously going to post Miss Myrtle because she's a queen and she's going to beautify my feed. Um, what, uh, anyways, I want to know, what do you guys make of this case? How on earth was he able to avoid detection even with face, even when faced with law enforcement time and time again? I just think it's crazy that they stopped the bus and that he was like probably shaking in his boots thinking, oh man, I'm going to get caught. I'm going back to jail. And they were just looking for illegal fruit. Are you freaking kidding me? That's insane. It's literally crazy how he dodged bullets again and again and again and again. Was it good luck or does he seriously have the devil on his side? Where do you think he is now? Do you think he's in those locations that David was telling us about? Uh, Let me tell you where they were again. Ohio, Michigan, Florida, Alabama, Texas, California, Washington. Or do you think that he knows that they know where he's been? So he's somewhere completely different. Ugh. Uh, do you think he's ever going to be caught? Let me know on the post that I made on Instagram at mystery still unsolved. I hope that you all have a happy Thanksgiving this upcoming Thursday. I know I will certainly be thankful for you. I really appreciate you all so much for listening and being supportive and being here for me. You make the late nights researching and writing and recording and editing all worthwhile. I seriously love you guys. And don't forget to join me next week when together we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved? Breaking news. We have some updates in this case. Um, just as I was about to close out this episode, I decided last minute that I was going to go online and see if I could find any updates on this case. And guess what? Updates galore, you guys. Um, So for starters, since this episode has aired, um, they have increased the, um, what is it? The reward from 25,000 to 50,000. So David, I hope that you are prepared to dig deep into your pockets because after this episode was released, they have reason to believe that Lester Eubanks is still alive. After 50 years being on the run, they have apparently got like a timeline. They're not really sharing any information, but they have a timeline of people putting in tips that like it makes sense when they put it together. Like one guy was like, oh, hey, I saw him here on this day. And then a little bit later, another woman confirmed a separate account and they didn't even know each other. So they have reason to believe that he's alive and that he's still on the run and that he is losing his freaking shit shit right now because he knows that he's going to be caught soon because people are paying attention 
Um, also, another thing that I wanted to mention, um, just because I find it interesting, it's not really an update per se, um, but it could actually help to identify him being involved in previous cases um, back like when he was arrested. Apparently, he had a child with a woman who was unfortunately sexually assaulted by him. So the person has chosen to withhold their name in order to protect their identity and to protect the identity of their beloved mom who went through this tragedy. Um, And he has agreed to provide a DNA sample that might be able to link Um, Lester Eubanks to even more cases. So when he is finally caught, he might have some more things that he needs to fess up to. And I am all for that. Anything that we need to do to get this guy and to keep him in jail for the rest of his life. I mean, come on, he's had 50 years to run around and play. I think it's time for him to face some freaking justice, don't you? Um, So I'm really excited about this news. I'm trying to see if I found anything else. Um, apparently Eubanks will turn 77 on Halloween. So he just turned 77. Not happy birthday to you because I don't like you. Um, but Brian Fitzgibbon, who is a friend of David Silas, he's a U.S. Marshal as well. He said he's alive and I feel we're getting closer. So I am so optimistic. I'm so excited to have an update for you guys, hopefully in the near future, saying that somebody that we discussed was actually finally caught and is being brought the frick to justice. Wouldn't that be incredible? That would make my life and my dreams come true. Um, So I hope that you guys enjoyed those updates. Keep an eye out for him. He's out there, people. All right, for real this time. Here's hoping for a mystery that will soon be solved.